Welcome to episode 21 of The Belief Shift. We don't know what we're titling this, so you already know what it's titled, listener, because we titled it. But as we're going into it, we don't know what we're titling it. It's something about the idea of thought partnering or group activity or just not doing stuff alone. I think we talked about this when we said when we're going to talk about creating a plan that you should shop it around, you should share it, you should... It should be something that's done with others, as opposed to, I'm just going to sit in my little office and write my plan by myself. So the reason that I was focusing on this as a topic today is because I just literally did this yesterday and it was so fun. It was so great. I did a annual business planning workshop with a handful of business owners yesterday. We spent five hours together building out their plans and it was super fun. And I had been doing this the past couple of years on Zoom just you know, because pandemic kind of took out the option of doing it in person. And then this year I had enough energy around some of my clients that really wanted to do it in person and I had enough people locally to do it. So we did. So we got about 10 people and we just planned out our stuff and it was just delightful. And so I just thought we really need to talk about why is that so much better? Welcome to The Belief Shift, the show that explores what you really need to know about building a successful small business. I'm your host, Camille Rapaz, small business coach and consultant who spent too much of her career working in corporate business performance. And I'm George Trapeau, your co-host and her brother. I'm a leader in the tech world, bringing my corporate perspective, but mostly my curiosity. Together, we're exploring beliefs about success and how to achieve it, but mostly we're bringing practical solutions so you and your business can thrive. I'm going to break another secret for the audience here and say that like you have a note at this point saying, hey, George, ask your George questions about this. And coming into this, I had some questions in mind, but as you're talking, first of all, you answered most of the initial questions I had, but then it brought up a whole slew of other things. So can I just dump these on you? Yes. Okay. In no particular order. So have we talked about on the podcast, you as an introvert and me as an extrovert and how that expresses itself differently and how we deal with it, but mostly you as an introvert. Have we talked about that? We haven't explicitly talked about it. I think I've mentioned it by the by. But I don't think we've actually talked about the fact that I am an introvert and you are an extrovert and how that shows up. Well, I hope I'm not outing you here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. But where I'm going with this was, so you do this all the time. You're very good at this. You lead, you get, I mean, when I hear you talk about the workshops that you do or in-person events, I can easily visualize how you would run all those things because I know you pretty well. (laughs) And yet you're an introvert. So I wonder, well... How does introvert Camille get into a space where you go and kick butt at this thing? Sure, it's highly energetic. And then is there blowback for you afterward that you have to kind of absorb a process? I do love doing it because even as though I'm an introvert, I still love to connect with people and how I connect with them is what matters. So extroverts tend to be able to feel energized through connecting with people and larger groups of people. You can handle a larger group easier than I could handle a larger group. And this particular group, I already knew most of the people that were showing up. So it was almost like doing it with friends. But even if it was all a group of new people, it was a small enough group. Like I said, it was just a room of 10 people. And I can still make meaningful connection with people. And that's what matters for an introvert. Can I have a meaningful connection and conversation? I'm also in control because I'm leading the whole thing. So I can manage my energy and how I'm going to ask people to walk through the exercises. So that is really helpful for me. But in terms of blowback, absolutely, there's blowback. So whenever I do an event like this, I do get all jazzed up. I'm super excited about doing it. And I go in there and energy, 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 but all the energy is going out. It's all flowing out and I love it. And I do get some back just from the interactions, but it's mostly energy depleting. And so I have to rejuvenate myself. I have to make sure I set aside time to just be alone. And that's how I will re-energize myself. And I need to much more than an extrovert needs to do. I have to do it more often. This is what I notice because I'm also married to an extrovert. So I'll need to do that. And it doesn't mean extroverts also don't need this, right? You need your own downtime too. I certainly do. I need to be more thoughtful about it. I need to plan it out. I need to recognize the frequency and the level of quiet that I actually need in order to re-energize myself. For me, I just look at it as just part of my process. It's just what I do. Yeah. It doesn't ever get in the way of what I do. And then I go re-energize myself and then I'm ready to do the next thing. So when it's hard is when I'm doing a multi-day event. 
So I used to do oh, yeah. week-long leader training that I didn't lead the whole thing the whole week, thankfully. I had a team, so we all were taking turns, but I was responsible for the whole thing. So I was present the whole time and either back of the room or front of the room, depending on what was going on. There was one day where I pretty much owned the whole day. So we're doing that. So I'm on the whole time because I'm in the room. So for me, whether I'm in the front of the room or not, I'm on. I'm with this group of people all day long, leading them through. I loved seeing the transformations that leaders would have, but I would be wiped out. And so that weekend, there could be zero plans in my schedule all weekend, yeah. zero plans. Yeah. Next question. You mentioned where you're able to be in a room with people and do this versus having to do it virtually. And I felt this in this last year too. It is highly satisfying being there with people. The energy is better. It feels like it's easier to be more productive. What did you observe being there in person that made it a better experience than doing it all virtually? I think part of it is the type of activity. How do you decide when it's important to be in person versus not? Yeah, right? exactly. Like even here, it's when is it important for me to go meet with a client in person at their office for my local clients versus yes. just be here? Yeah. So part of it for me is what type of work are we going to do? If it's going to be highly collaborative and creative, that tends to go better when you're in person. And if you're going to be using tools that work better in person. One of the things that's been happening with one of my clients is we're doing a lot of strategic planning and we just can't do them all in person. There's too many sessions and people are scattered all over the country. So mm. we're doing it online and we're using Miro for the online to sort of mimic what we would do if we were in person using post-it notes and on the wall and trying to be creatively moving things around. That's working pretty well, but it's still, as soon as we get in a room with people, there's a different dynamic that shifts just because you're human to human. And I don't really know how to put a, a word to that or a description to that. I'm not an expert in the psychology of what happens there, but something does happen. So somebody yeah. called out in the group yesterday said they loved just being able to feel the synergy of everybody doing the same thing together in the same room. I don't know how else to describe that, except that there's real value to that. As humans, we do need a sense of community and connectedness. And I think that connection that you do not get that same connection virtually. You can only get that from just being with an actual human in the room. And it does make a difference. It helps creativity. It helps bring different energy to the work that you're doing, all sorts of stuff. I completely agree. And it's something I like thinking about and seeing if I can get more crisp. I want to relate that to a different, but I think related concept for me. A long time ago, I joined this advanced development group where there are a few of us who are developers. There's a psychologist and an anthropologist in the group as well. Very smart people. Yeah, and it's because we were studying how we could use computer tools to aid human interaction. They built some early conferencing tools a long time ago before all this stuff was common. And I remember psychologists, my friend, teaching me what they had learned about how information is shared or transferred to people. The basic rule of thumb was when you're physically co-located with your teammates, you know, if you're all sitting in the same hallway or in the same building, you're all there together. There's two types of information. There's formal information and informal information. Formal information you can do through an all hands, emails, announcements, things like that. And that gets passed down generally. And you don't have to be in person to receive most of that stuff. But when you're together, there's a lot of informal information that happens. You're at the water cooler and you meet up and you talk about something and you exchange some idea and a decision gets made or an important concept gets transferred. The value of being in person is the enablement of all that informal information that we don't really easily account for, but is definitely a thing that helps teams feel more cohesive. So we were trying to build tools that replicated that. We had a tool where it was a conferencing tool where everybody's camera was on all the time. And we were trying to simulate you going by somebody's office. You know, you walk down to somebody's office and you look at the window, you kind of maybe wave or just make eye contact. And if they're on the phone, they'll wave you off or they won't pay attention. That just takes a couple of seconds before you know if it's okay to walk in or not. We replicated that. And so like, if I wanted to talk to you, I would press a button on my list of people for you. It would turn on both of our cameras, but no sound for just a few, like five seconds. And so I was, you would see the camera, you'd say, oh, it's George. And you'd use that same kind of behavior of you would either pay attention to me or wave me off or whatever. And if you didn't confirm the connection, then after five seconds, the cameras would shut down and go away. It was like I walked by. It was a really interesting way to address that kind of problem. 
But where I'm going with all this is the concept about meeting virtually versus in-person reminds me of formal versus informal information transfer. And I wonder if there's a relationship there. It feels like that's got to be a huge piece of it, right? As you were saying that, I was thinking about examples yesterday of when just informal conversations were happening across business owners who didn't know each other and hadn't met until they got in the room even. And they started having conversations and they were helping each other. I had not assigned people to talk to each other. I just said there was a point where I was going around the room and just what we're going to talk about today, sort of thought partnering with each one of the business owners about their brainstorms and how they were turning those into goals for their business. And as I was doing that, I was like, and everyone else talk to each other, either work on your own plan. If your head's down, writing your plan, great, or talk to each other. And some of them were doing that. And it was this, their ability to just sort of decide randomly whether they were going to do that or not yeah, was so much easier than imagine if I was trying to be on Zoom and either, you know, do you want a breakout room or like, it's so much more formal, the informality of the decision to connect, what you connect on, all of that, as you said, the information they choose to share. I think that we underestimate the value of doing that and creating space for that and what comes out of it. And so I think that's part of the value in doing that work together is there are things that will happen that you could never plan enough to make happen without just creating the environment for it. Mm, I like that. I was also curious about how long it was, the the group size and stuff, which I think is interesting too, because if you had said, yeah, it was 50 people, I would wonder, wow, how did you get stuff done in just just five hours with that many people? But 10 seems like to me, maybe about the maximum size where you can really go in intensively. Maybe you can do bigger groups. That was about the max size for what I was trying to do to make sure that I could be highly interactive with them. More than that, and it would have had to been much more, even though I was walking through them through the steps, it's still highly variable because they were business owners of all different sizes and types, and they're all small business owners. But even at that, some were just getting started. Some had been in business for seven or 10 years, but the process was the same. The bigger the group gets, the more just instructional it is than interactive. So we got to make it highly interactive. And it just made Mm -hmm. me think about just this value of doing it all as a group and doing it in person. And what we just talked about, that value of doing it in person, I think we're all sort of recognizing, even though we're like, oh, it turns out we could all do our jobs from home and on Zoom. You can, but depending on the work that you're doing, again, it gets back to when you're making the decision to travel or to come together physically for a meeting, I think you start with what are the objectives and what are my methods for meeting those objectives? Then once I know what that is, is that better served by doing it in person or can we get good enough by doing it virtually? Yeah. That's what you're trying to draw the line for. And this particular effort that I was doing with these business owners, there were several reasons for them coming together in person and that's sort of even how it played out. Even when I just brought it up to them, they all really just jumped on it. And I think part of that is just the fact that we haven't been doing it for a couple of years. Almost any opportunity for people to meet in person now, most of the people I talk to, they're like, yes, please, because they miss it. It's yeah. convenient. But, and I had people who were driving like two hours. So it was a long day for them, but it was worth it because they got to be with people when they otherwise wouldn't get to do this work. Yeah. So the first level of this value, which could be virtual or in-person, this one isn't so specific to it being in-person, but it's just the idea of the accountability that we actually just booked this time together to do a thing. So one of the participants in the workshop said, you know, I I would like to think that I'm the kind of person that would go do this work on my own. But if I'm really honest with myself, I'm not. I need this dedicated time that you have scheduled for us to come together and do it. So just accountability of having a group, which also we'll talk about in terms of even just having a thought partner, accountability becomes just one of the number one things, right? Yeah. We already talked about synergy in the room. So just that other level of energy that's buzzing around when you're all doing the same thing and focused on the same type of work Uh, is really, you know, energizing. Yeah, absolutely. I always think about- how when you were in college, if you really wanted to focus and study, you'd go to the library. Well, why is that? I mean, I wasn't necessarily checking out books, but I would go to the library, right? (laughs) I didn't need all the books that were there. I just needed the environment. I needed that energy. This is why you'd have a study group. We're all just going to sit down and do this work together. 
And it's helpful to create that common sense of purpose. And you have that energy or the synergy that's created from that. So that was definitely a thing that everybody was feeling. We've been alone in our Zoom worlds and just that idea of connection, but also for these business owners, it was that they're not alone in their business challenges. So even as they're talking about what they're working on, and this is kind of related to another one I was going to talk about, which was this validation that I am not alone in the struggles of my business. Business owners tend to look at another business owner. People do this to me all the time. Oh, you just seem like you just really have it all together and you just know what you're doing. I'm like, my business is also not perfect. I hate to admit that as a business coach, I don't have a perfect business, but there's really no such thing. Having your business be perfect would be incredibly difficult. Yeah. And everybody recognizing that and seeing like the business owner across the table from them who's been at it for seven years has aspects of their business that are not performing well is really just relieving because you realize, oh, it's okay. I might be really good at one part of my business. Like I might be really good at managing my finances, but I'm not really good at understanding how the marketing works or vice versa. And that's Mm -hmm. really what we were starting to see across the board. Everybody was an expert in what their business does, which is why their business does well, but certain functions of business itself, everybody had highly varied levels of mastery. Yes. Competence in any one of those areas. And it was very relieving for everybody to just see that. The last couple of things in terms of why I even do the workshop, one is the idea that I'm giving them the process. If you're left to your own devices to plan, some people just don't even know where to start. So me walking in through the steps was obviously a big bonus for them because then they could focus on their actual content of the plan and not on what should I do next. I told them now do this next. But the last one and the one I really want to emphasize today is the idea of having thought partners. What's the definition of a thought partner? Let's talk more about that. So thought partner is is somebody that you're sharing ideas or experiences. It's typically a conversation between either just two people or a very small group of people. I usually just thought partner with one other person. And it's usually mutually beneficial. Like we're thought partnering together. I'm helping you and you're helping me in this process. And it's a way for us to really talk through you know how we sometimes do better thinking out loud? A lot of it is just that. We're just thinking out loud. We're processing these complex problems out loud. And I'm doing it with a sounding board. Now you can kind of reflect back to me some of my thoughts and how that's working. It's kind of the idea that we would come together. And in this specific instance of what we did yesterday, it's you're going to build a business plan and then you're going to share that plan with me. And I'm going to echo back some thoughts or some questions or some ideas to help you refine your plan, refine your thinking. Because on our own, our brains really need something to react to, to get that refinement to happen. And that's what thought partnering does. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I don't think I've ever really thought about a concrete definition of thought partnership. And then I hear how you describe it and think, yeah, that's Really nice. It's really crisp. If you were to ask me, so George, how would you define thought partnership? Go. Yeah, go. I, would, yeah. I guess my off the cuff reaction would be a thought partner is, as you said, having somebody else to compare ideas with, to, to discuss your ideas with. And why I have a thought partner is for a couple of reasons for me. One is it helps me get outside of my own head because I can easily get wrapped around my own thought process and I can become more rigid. And so I have get more dug into a point of view and I lose the ability to brainstorm and have perspective, but I share with one other person, I get another brain gets me out of my own head and that's useful. I think that, but you've already said that, but that's the, the big thing for me. The other is I'm really big, big fan of the idea of sharing context with people, whether it's people on my team report to me, giving them as much context as I can to help them make better decisions. There's a Star Trek discovery episode that talks about context, by the way, Lorca. Yeah, the whole episode title is Context is for Kings. It's a great episode. But I also think that thought partnership, you're getting somebody else's context to react to your thoughts. And I think that's helpful. Often I talk about models of behavior. You know, you used to have somebody you look up to in a certain way. And I have this thing where I have certain people in my life who are the model that I use for a particular kind of thing. There's somebody in my life who, when I want to think strategically, when I'm not sure I'm doing it on my own or clearly, this guy is the guy I think like, what would Ashu do in this situation? He's the most strategic thinker I know. How would he think about this? And if I can get myself to think like him, it helps. In that way, he's a virtual thought partner. So when I'm seeking advice, I guess I find I will go 
talk to different people depending on the kind of reaction I need or the kind of angle I think I need at the time. Yeah, definitely. If you're really going to use Thart Partnership well, you have different thought partners like you're describing because you're really looking for people who have some sort of either expertise or knowledge or something that really is going to help you with the specific thing you want a thought partner on. So if you want a thought partner about your business plan, go thought partner with somebody who knows what a good business plan looks like, right? Yeah. If you're going to thought partner about coding, go partner with somebody who understands something about coding. It doesn't necessarily have to be that they're more expert than you, but you do want somebody who's got some kind of knowledge or expertise that fits what you're going to talk about. Because even if they don't know more than you, they're going to know different from you. And that's really the value of the thought partnership is it doesn't have to be that that person is above you in a level of expertise or something like that. It's not like a mentorship where it's like, oh, this person's way out ahead of me. And so I'm meeting with them to get guidance in that way. This can be much more of an even playing field. I think what's more important is that you find somebody that's going to share different perspectives. They're not just going to be, yes, all of your stuff sounds great. That's great. So I would never thought partner with my mom because she thinks all of my ideas are perfect and that I'm a perfect human. You say it's fabulous. And then she won't help me think outside my own box of I'm fabulous. Right? Yeah. 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 Not a good thought partner. Sorry, mom. No, not good for that. Not for that. <clears throat> She's good in many other ways, but not for that. So when it comes to a thought partner, you want somebody who's going to be like, huh, you're always a great thought partner because you always will come up with a different perspective or angle or question to ask. So you want fresh ideas and you want somebody mm. who's going to really help you uncover maybe ideas that you just hadn't surfaced yet. So I always think about whenever you're creating something, whether you're creating a plan or a concept, fleshing out an idea, whatever it is that you're doing, we only get so far on our own, but there's more stuff. We have more ideas in our brains, but we run out of the energy or the capacity to pull them all out of our brains. And so I always think thought partner is somebody who's actually trying to like pull that little idea out of our head, you know, in Harry Potter. That's when awesome. They yeah. The pensive. Yeah. And they're pulling their, yeah. your memories out. It's like that, but it's a new idea. That's lovely. So I always think of thought partners that how could I help find some of those ideas that are just buried in there somewhere? I want to help you have that little light bulb or aha moment of, oh yeah, oh, and this, yes, and that. And it's just, it's just been buried. The other thing that a thought partnership can do for you is it also can be a way to help create accountability for yourself. So I know people mm. who have recurring thought partner conversations with people, and I've done this in the past, where it's just, we're just going to come together and thought partner about you know, our businesses, like we're just going to share what's going on. That's it. There's no other real objective than that to just talk about what's going on because I don't have anyone else to talk to about it who understands what I'm doing, except, you know, this person over here, accountability to, to actually work through problems. Go I have ahead. a question for you. Although I think this is really a question for our new friend, Shula. Shulamit. What do you think about the idea of using a therapist as a thought partner? Does that work? Oh, that's interesting. We will have to ask her what she thinks about, is that the role of a therapist? Hi there, George and Camille. George, what a good question. Can I use my therapist as a thought partner? In fact, I would say that's what therapists do. If you have something come up and you need to talk it over, you want to explore. Usually we do it in a thinking because of course we think of therapists as mental health. So we bring emotional or psychological issues or interpersonal issues, the kind of things we see as appropriate in therapy to a therapist. But what we do when we bring the issue to the table is to be curious about it and to talk it over and to understand what's going on and to gain insight and to connect with ourselves around that thing. And to me, that's what I understand thought partnership to be. So I have, yes, definitely brought thought partnership issues to my own therapist when I have an issue that I want to talk over. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this thing. I want to check it out. I want to see how it sits with me how I feel about it, what my inner wisdom is about this thing, as much as what I think about it. I've done that lots of times. And I think that that's a perfect way for folks to be able to use the skills of their therapists in a broader way. I think it's a great idea. And I'm so glad you asked the question. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to weigh in. What I can tell you is I do think it's the role of a coach. 
as a consultant, not as much, but as a coach, yes. Oh, okay. Please say more. So these two methods, coaching and consulting often kind of get mushed together. And I do both, even though I call myself a coach, I'm doing both. When I'm consulting, I'm really either, I'm either consulting as, and I'm filling in a specific gap in a company. So I go in as a consultant to do project management for you because you don't have good project management skills on site. So I'm internally providing that expertise as a consultant or as a consultant, I'm actually providing specific advice or expertise on a topic. So I'm teaching your organization how to build out your project management expertise, Uh, for example, or as a consultant, I'm leading your company through a strategic planning session, right? So I was operating as a consultant yesterday by providing the actual steps to do their plans. I'm going to tell you what they are. This is what you do. And this is what your plan should look like. I was more of a coach when I went into my thought partner mode, which was, okay, now they've done the step, but now they need help actually refining the process that they went through into something meaningful for them. And this becomes a very specific, now they have to pick their three goals. For example, what are my top three goals for the year? They brainstorm out all these ideas. And instead of me going in and being like, yep, it's one, two, and three. Sometimes the better way was for me to ask a bunch of questions like, wow, okay, Mm -hmm. what is actually the most important? Like if you could only do one of these, what would it be? And why would that be? And if you didn't do it, what would happen? So I'm just asking questions to, I'm now creating new thoughts in their head. Like, oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, I don't know. Oh, let me process this. So they're having to process new ideas and come up with their own answers. So I'm not telling them what the answers are. I'm guiding them to find their best answers. So that's when I think it's more thought partnership. And that's what coaching is. Coaching is me helping you get your own good answers that are sitting in your brain and really pull them forward, help you get a new perspective to actually get rock solid on them. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. My example of this thought partnering as a coach yesterday for me, it was showing up in that way of standing in front of their post-its full of ideas and trying to help them refine them. How much thought partnering versus not really depended on where they were at and how clear that they seemed to be with their goals. I could usually tell just by looking at it like, wow, I can see your priorities. It's really clear to me. And then I would just ask them why, why is this the priority to make sure it was right and that they had a clear answer and other people, it was more guiding them into thinking about, I could see there was something else bubbling under there. Sometimes I would just ask them to think about what if it was this, try that on. So not tell them to do it, but just try it on and see if like, if that was part of this goal that you were working on, does that feel right or not? So trying to maybe fill in some gaps too. So thought partnership is not always just, I'm only asking questions. It's definitely includes, I'm going to, you know, share some ideas. I'm going to give you some what ifs that I have in my own head. Thus the thought partner, I'm going to give you one of my thoughts and you can try it on for size, right? Yep. So it does go both ways. So the next thing I want to talk about is how do you actually do thought partnership well? Yeah. The first is finding the right person. Not everybody is good at this. And you all know who I'm talking about in your life who is not good at this because either they think everything you do is amazing or they are too focused on just telling you what to do and not on listening to what you have to say. So some people really want to just give you answers. Like that's their focus. They're trying to be helpful in that way, but they're just not really a great listener. So your thought partner, whoever you choose, they got to be a good listener too. Ultimately, you want them to have some area of expertise or knowledge or something. They've been through some experience that you value, that that's why you want a thought partner with them. That really ups the game. It could just be a shared experience. Like I said, I'm a small business owner and you're a small business owner. That's valuable right there just for us to thought partner on business stuff, right? Yeah. So this is what you want to look for. And then you want to make an agreement with them about what this thought partnering thing actually means. Like, what are we doing? Oh, we're sharing ideas, helping each other with our challenges. You just want to have some actual agreement about that's what you're doing. So it just doesn't turn into either a bitch session or a, I don't know, devolve into something not useful. So be specific about that. That's what we're doing now. and then. 
It's a great place to, we've talked about this in the past, and I thought this would be a great place to really dig deeper into the concept of humble inquiry. Oh, yeah. Because humble inquiry is, man, that is such a valuable tool in so many different ways, but it, it actually could serve you to be a really great thought partner. And to also, you can just learn this together with somebody who that you want a thought partner with to both get really yeah, good at this. Absolutely. So, so humble inquiry is there is, I'll put this into the show notes so you can find, there is a book called humble. There's a few books by this author. His name's Edgar Schein and his books are pretty short and easy to read. You can also just Google this and see a lot of just basic information about humble inquiry. It's basically described as the art of asking versus telling. So it's asking questions in an open-ended way, questions that you don't have the answers to, to genuinely create new thoughts for people and help them find their own answers. I have a whole exercise that I have laid out for how to help leaders learn how to be better at humble inquiry, because humble inquiry is an incredible way to build trust in your team and get them to be better at their own problem solving. So it's an incredible coaching tool and all leaders should know how to do it. Yeah. I don't know. All humans should know how to do it. All parents <laughs> should know how to do it because it shows a lot of respect for the other person in that they have yeah. their own abilities and thoughts and they can process stuff on their own. And the best way I can help them is by helping them be better at that and not by just giving them the answer. So it's kind of the same thing as, you know, my little nephew, Avi, you don't want to just tell him how to do everything in life. You want him to also learn his own way of doing it. You want him to discover things for himself and learn for himself. If you just told him how to do everything, he wouldn't really be learning how to do things. He would just learn one way how to do things. So it's kind of that whole just development cycle of how do you help people learn how to learn? I want to talk about this humble inquiry in just a little yeah. bit more detail. Are you down for that? Yeah, let's do it. Love it. So humble inquiry does require deep listening while also coming up with thoughtful questions. I have this exercise and I do this with leaders and the hardest thing for leaders to do, and these are good leaders. They've been at it for a while. They're very experienced. And yet every leader I know struggles to ask an open-ended question. Absolutely. You, an open-ended question is something you cannot answer with just yes or no, or one word. That's I can't right. just say, yes, it's this. It has to require a narrative to answer the question. Yeah. Because if I just ask for yes or no answers, I'm not opening thought. I'm not opening that person up to really trying to generate new ideas and think about stuff. I would highly recommend people try this out and see how hard it actually is and continue to do it. What's my next open-ended question? My next open-ended question. I think you're sort of a natural at this, George, but yeah. so many people really just struggle with doing it. Yeah, they're bad at it. Do you ever coach people on this, on your team? Absolutely, you yeah, all like, the time. How yeah. do you do that? How do you help them do better? I do this a lot when we're doing interviewing training mm. because in our, in our style, we tend to follow a behavior-based interview format. The premise is when you're interviewing somebody, their past behavior is a good indicator of how they will be in the future. Think about a situation you want to ask them about that you're going to elicit the behavior you're looking for. And then ask them, give me the background. I'm here like STAR is the typical acronym I've heard. Tell me the situation you're in. Tell me what the task was you're trying to accomplish. What actions did you take and what was the result? And so I'll tell them, look, you're telling me a story here about something you actually did. I'm going to ask you questions about that. And when I train people how to do this interviewing style, we'll do a couple practice ones. And generally in interviewing, it's very easy to switch from closed-ended to open-ended questions. For example, how many times did you have to talk to the group to get your point across? Closed-ended question. I talked to them five times. Open-ended question. What was your thinking when you decided to ask your colleagues about this? Open-ended question. It was very, one of the easiest open-ended questions. What the hell were you thinking when you did that? <laughs> <laughs> That's a closed-ended way of asking an open-ended question. I like that. When you're thinking about open-ended questions, just that example you gave of the open-ended question that also had a little bit of a chip to it. The mm -hmm. whole point of humble inquiry is respect. It's respect yeah. for people. So how you're phrasing the question, it's respecting that they do have depth of thought 
and it's respecting the problem that they're trying to solve. And there's just, that's the the main crux of why you go at this humble inquiry in this way. It's really about showing respect for people. Yeah. So you yeah, can see how that's awesome. building trust and it's doing all sorts of stuff, but it's helpful in just this thought partnership, even if your role in thought partnership, even if you have all the trust in the world already with that person, it's helping at this other layer of now I'm helping you by having that trust. I'm also now putting that trust into play. It's one thing to say, I trust you. It's oh. another to then now let's actually act that oh, out. Yeah. It's like, you know, when we get challenged with how do I actually put my values into my actions, into my behaviors, yeah. this yeah. is one way to do that. Like I trust yeah. you and you trust me. And now we're going to play that out by the way that we have this interaction, by the way this conversation goes. Very cool. So yeah. I love thinking about it in that way because it really just changes the dynamic of the conversation that you're about to have, right? It changes for me when I go up to work with a client in this way. I walk into it not as like, I'm the expert here to tell you what to do, but you have your own expertise and I'm just here to help enhance and add to that. Mm -hmm. But I already trust that you do know what you're doing a lot. You probably underestimate that, but I'm yeah. here to both show you how much you already know and then amplify it. Yeah, I believe that too. I don't know how, but you and I have the same philosophy about people that way. We're going to trust the expertise of the person we're asking about. There's plenty in there. We can help them pull it out. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely true. And I think for so the most empowering. part, yeah, I think for the most part that the reason that my job even exists is <laughs> mostly because people just underestimate their own capabilities and knowledge and expertise. Yeah, for sure. I see it all the time where they're like, well, it's just what I do. It's what you do. It's not what everybody does. Uh -huh. And they really underestimate that, especially small business owners tend to underestimate the complexity of running a small business. And so they're constantly kind of beating themselves up for the stuff that they don't do well. I'm like, no business owner is doing all of this well, because there's a lot of moving parts in here. That doesn't mean you yeah. don't have a good business and a successful business. But what you are thinking needs to happen for this to be done well, air quotey, is just a level above what most people are actually have the capacity to do because there's a lot to do. Back to this humble inquiry and how to do it. Here's some guidelines to sort of think about this. You want to sort of recognize that when the problem owner, so think about it, you have a problem you're trying to solve or a gap you're trying to close and I'm here to help you. So one of the things is you're asking these open-ended question is as you're listening and this is another thing we have to get really good at listening and not trying to just think about the next question we're going to ask, but first listen. That's one of the hardest things of humble inquiries. I just need to listen. And as you do that, you're listening for, is the, the person I'm trying to help, are they jumping ahead as mm. they're problem solving or are they getting stuck? So, you know, sometimes you talk to somebody and they say, yeah. And so then X, Y, and Z needs to happen. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think we missed a whole bunch of steps of what's going to happen next though. Not what's going to show For up sure. at the end. Or they're just stuck because they don't know what's going to happen next. So you can ask questions to help flush that out. Right. Yeah. There's also asking questions that will help them to be more aware of what they're sort of assuming or not assuming. Sometimes their answers, you can hear that there's a bunch of assumptions built in yeah. and you can just like, wow, well, tell me what, you know, wh what are the assumptions that go into that? And maybe they hadn't even thought about them as assumptions. And they're like, oh yeah, I am sort of assuming this, this, and this is all going to happen and go well. Yes. And then you say, wow, what if those don't happen? <laughs> and oh, so, you know, anything that's like a, what if question is great. Well, what if blah, blah, and they have to run through a scenario. That's a great way to get people to think outside the box of what they were otherwise thinking. May I tell you a big enterprise version of this one? The most common time I run into this is when I'm reviewing a slide deck that somebody's created. A colleague or somebody reporting to me, they've written the slide deck with all these great ideas and they want to convince somebody, some, they want to get something done. And they look at the slide deck and they say, George, what do you think? And I'll look at it and it's like this. I notice clearly you're making a lot of assumptions you really need to tease out here. And my first question usually is, whom did you imagine was... The audience for this. When, when you picture somebody reading this, who's in your mind of reading that? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Okay, well, <laughs> I think this person is going to see the document. How do you think they're going to perceive this? Do they know all the stuff in here that you're talking about? And they'll be like, oh, yeah. And it usually hits them like that. 
Yeah. I love that. I think for small businesses, the same example applies to, I'm going to create some kind of, you know, marketing material. And the first question is who's it for? Yeah. (laughs) And really specifically in your audience, who is this for? And you're like, oh yeah, well, what do they need to know? Who is this really for? Because usually when we're just thinking about our audience, there's different customer, you know, avatars as we call them. We like to say there's just one, but there's lots of variations on them. And anything yeah. that we create can be something different depending on who it is that this is actually for. And if we try to make it too generic, then nobody wants the thing that we made. Yeah. We have sort of a similar problem in just how we're creating for communicating ideas to our audience, to our potential customers. I like yeah. that example. You're really focused on how am I helping them sort of identify their own assumptions that they might be making, really looking at... Also, are they looking at all angles of that problem? I have some examples of types of questions you can ask. And some of these are almost like no fails. And this is something that I've handed out to leaders in the past, where I just give them the humble inquiry card. They have a little three by five card. So if they're in a meeting and they don't know what questions to ask, they're just like, oh, I can always ask these. So here's the questions. And I want to know if it makes you think of other questions, George, that you've asked. Okay. Uh, okay. So one of the questions is just, so what's happening? I know that sounds like trite maybe, but imagine what kinds of things could open up if you're like, tell me what's happening. What's happening right now? Not if you ask it like Bill Lumberg. <laughs> hey, what's happening? Yeah. yeah. None of what but- we do on this podcast should be an example of Bill Lumberg. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So just what's happening? What problem are you trying to solve? That can be a really deep dive for a lot of people. You would be surprised. I'd be surprised if how many times people are presenting an idea or, you know, trying to solve a problem that they really haven't defined. So what problem are you trying to solve? Why is it important? What concerns you the most? Oh, yeah. What else do you need to know? Hmm. And how could you learn it? Just please go on. Tell me more. I use tell me more a lot. Me too. People stop talking. Also, just not saying anything. Just leave some airspace. Somebody Mm -hmm. stops talking and you just being silent, which is makes everybody uncomfortable. They'll start talking more. This is coaching 101. Just don't talk and they'll say more stuff. Yeah. The other thing I like about tell me more is you can spice it up in how you say it. And so you're expressing to the other person just how excited you are to hear anything where they want to say, like they're giving you dessert, you know? You are great at this, by the way. (laughs) This is why people, like I tell people, well, when you meet my brother, you are going to be so enamored with him because he's going to make you feel like you're the most fascinating human on the planet. (laughs) Cause you're really good at doing that. Like, wow, tell me more about that. Like just how you would do it. You do it in this really energized way. This is why it's so important for leaders to know how to do or any human with a human interaction, but leaders, especially in just really motivating people to keep thinking and keep talking and because you're genuinely interested in them, right? You want to hear what else they have to say. Also, you could say, give me an example. That's one of my favorites right there. Give me an example. That's a go-to for me. That's a go-to. Yeah. I like that one. Yeah. It's great. I mean, it's almost foolproof as an open-ended question. And the other thing about it is it's compact as a question. So you're not wasting most of your time with you asking the question. Give me an example. It's four words and you're done. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of all of these is literally they don't need any more words. What concerns you the most? I don't need to say any more than that. That's all I need to say. And then you go back on you. So I say four words and then you say 50. Yeah. Right. One last example I have. One more. That's it. I only have have one more example. What are your next steps? And these are really, as you can see, they're really framed around helping people solve a problem, which should essentially be the purpose of your thought partnering. There is a problem here I'm trying to solve. Because otherwise, what are you doing, right? Yeah. But I think oftentimes we do thought partnering without being really clear about what problem we are trying to solve. So that question of what problem are you trying to solve, it could always be like, let's just kick it off with that. And sometimes I've worked with people where that's all we talked about for like an hour because it's complicated. The problem, you start to get more granular and more granular. Breaking down the actual problem you're trying to solve is so important. And we often just skip past it. One, because it can be really hard to do, but also because it's much more fun to talk about solutions. Oh, yeah. It just is. Yeah. So when you're doing this, the three don'ts are do not 
use harsh or judgmental tone, like George's example of the open-ended but snarky question. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> no run-on or multiple questions. So all of these question examples are great yeah. because they're succinct and then you only ask one. So don't even try to feed them answers by saying, how could you learn it? Like, are you going to talk to so-and-so or like, no, all you do is ask the question. How could you learn it? That's it. <laughs> don't feed them any answers. So no run-ons and no multiple questions. Questions would be like, well, what else do you need to know? And how could you learn it? Nope. You got to <laughs> ask those questions separately. Yeah. Not together. And then avoid just the inquisition of question after question, like pause, like leave space, allow the person to think, allow for them to go, huh, let me think about that. That's a good question. Just let it happen. You don't have to fill the dead airspace. Sometimes people just need quiet to process what they're thinking about and gather their thoughts and share them. So leave time for that. So those are my questioning don'ts. Do you have any examples of bad questions? Oh, yeah. Um well, my joking one is not serious, but like, do you really think that shirt goes with those pants? <laughs> <laughs> but I, there's a classic closed-ended question that engineering people like to answer. I've heard this many times. It's a question that's really proposing solution. If you were to do such and such a thing, do you think this would work for you? Or what would you think if you tried this approach? It's not really an open-ended question. It's my agenda built into my question, trying to get you toward an answer. That's not a specific question, but it's a form of a question, you know? Oh, I love that example because this is something that people can very sneakily do and make it look like they're being a good coach. But I'm just asking under the guise of an open-ended question, I'm also feeding you the direction or the answer. Yeah. If you're going to do that, be honest. Be more direct about, <laughs> I want to present a new idea to you. Have you thought about trying X? That's when I'm going back and forth from coaching to consulting mode, right? Then I'm saying, have you thought about trying X? Or I recommend you try this thing. That's me consulting. And you can yes. do that. And also thought partners can do that. Just don't pretend you're not doing it. You know what I mean? Like if I have I a specific do. thing that I think like, hey, you might try X. I have a thing that I think could actually help you. Here's the thing. It's still up to you whether you're going to do it or not. But just be really clear, like now I'm just giving you direct advice. And I even say this in my membership group when we're having conversations and we're just sharing and people are asking for support. I ask them to be clear about, are you asking us to just cheerlead you? Do you want direct feedback? Like, what are you open to? Do you want people to just tell you what they do? Like, here's my solution. What do you actually want to hear? Yeah. And you have to be clear about what you're open to receive and how you want to receive that. So that's important in thought partnering too, is this is where it really helps to have somebody that you trust because even however they might convey information, you're able to receive it in the appropriate way. It never makes you feel prickly or undermined or lesser than or judged or any of those things. You know, it makes me think sometimes I'll scale my questions differently for different people based on their self-esteem. Here's what I mean. So I will tell somebody, sometimes I'm friend, look, I'm going to pick at you. If you don't mind that, I've got questions that's going to probe and probe and probe. You tell me when it hurts and we'll stop. But really, if you really need to get to a solid place on this, let me just pick at you. If you're maybe earlier in your career, or you're not used to that kind of inquisition stuff, then I might take a different approach and might just be asking open-ended questions to help you build your self-esteem. And I'm more in the, I'm just enthusiastic about everything you have to tell me mode, which is not hard for me to be. It's interesting. I'll say, hey, okay, tell me about this. Oh, it's interesting. Wow. I have not thought about that idea. What led you to come up with that idea? Just ask more questions like that. And the more they talk about their process, the more confidence they build up. And so they get used to kind of inquiry and not being afraid of it because they're not getting punished for it, but they're also getting more used to the introspection. I think that makes a lot of sense. You definitely want to gauge who are you talking to and what level of trust do we have and how well do we know each other and what's our expertise? Like there's lots of different things that go into, and we do this naturally just in life, right? As we're moving through yeah. it, you definitely want that to enter into these types of conversations as well. So you might find somebody that you thought partner with that you over time, actually, you guys get better and better at doing it because you have built this level of trust. And that person becomes the person who, you know, is going to give you that really good critical feedback and that you can take it and go, yeah, okay, that was really good. I know what to do with that. Because they've learned how to 
deliver it to you with compassion, without judgment, as just like, I've got something that I know you're going to love because it's going to help you be better at this thing. So this is ideally what everybody wants from their boss. And it's also why so many people decide to quit their bosses and go be their own boss because they just don't <laughs> get that, right? Because not very many yeah. people do this very well. Yeah, that's so, true. Learn how to get this for yourself. Business owners who are out there on your own, learn how to find this for yourself because you're not getting this support from working for a boss or in a company. And if you're not your own boss and you're listening to this, still learn how to get this for yourself. If you don't get it from your boss, find a way yeah. to have thought partnership, no matter what. It's the same thing that we should all have mentors. We should all have thought partners too. Yeah. And I would urge people to make it a priority this year, like find out how to do this well with people, try it out with a few people, create this way of connecting with others in order to improve. It will accelerate your own thought process and your own ability to plan and get work done. If you can find good thought partners, it's also just so, I don't know, I guess just emotionally rewarding because you make this connection with a person and there's just back to why we even came together in person to do the work of the workshop. Just the connecting with other people is just really a valuable thing. And remember that your professional thought partner is a coach like me, and that can be in anything in any realm of type of coaching that you're looking for. But definitely those are the people who really know how to do this well. That's really our focus is how can I thought partner with this person among other things, but that's one of the things we're trying to do to help you really bring all of the best ideas that you have up to the surface. I'm trying to help you go faster by doing that with you. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So that's it. That was my takeaway for the whole thing was go thought partner. Really more. cool. Yeah, I like it. And you and I are going to keep thought partnering more on this podcast. Yes, we sure will. That is all I have for this episode. So if you have things about thought partnering, leave us a voicemail at thebeliefshift.com. Also, if you are like one of our consistent listeners, which I know you're out there, people, and I know some of you that were in the workshop are also listening, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, if you would kindly, please. That helps more people find us. So if you think we're a great podcast and other people should know about us, that's one way to do it. Or just share it. Just tell people, hey, listen to this episode. I know some people have been doing that too, which I absolutely love. So thank you for listening and for sharing and all that good stuff and keep it up. Thank you. We will be back in everybody's ears next week. See everybody. 